I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, everybody. My name is David Boris. And I'm Frankie Z. And this is Everybody, everybody Sucks. Sucks, the podcast where we explore the struggles and triumphs of the journey from amateur to professional. People think that artists are born great at what they do, but the truth is, in the beginning, everybody everybody sucks. Hey everybody, welcome to the newest episode of Everybody Sucks, and today we have none other than Aaron Prochette. Aaron Prochette remains one of the leading entertainers in the Canadian country music industry, and he shows no signs of slowing down anytime soon. With several decades of experience on stages of all sizes, playing to crowds big and small, Aaron has consistently put on the same country rock-fueled show night in, night out. Prochette's mantra has always been, make the crowd feel like they're on stage with us and that we're out there with them. One big party with friends. The goal is to take ourselves away from any struggles and stresses of everyday life for at least 90 minutes and sometimes even longer. And this is his goal, and and he does it extremely well. People will never regret going to an AP show. Over the past 20 plus years, Prochette has had dozens of top 10 hits, as well as a Canadian number one. And with a new album on the way in 2024, the AP train is not only chugging along, but it is picking up steam. Aaron Prochette, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. This is great. AP. I like that. Uh, Also code for Associated Press. For those who don't know. Mm-hmm. And all purpose. Yeah, yeah exactly. All purpose. That's right. Awesome person. Awesome wow. person. Oh, wow. We're actually, we're knocking this right off the bat. Even drama. Yeah, that's, I, that's, I think we're, we wrote down, that's all we wrote down before the yeah. episode started. Um, Aaron, man, it's so good to have you on here. Uh, full disclosure to our listeners, me and Aaron have known each other a very long time, I feel, in this industry. Um, we, we go back and actually... Aaron's influence on me goes back even farther than me and Aaron knowing each other. So uh, maybe we'll get to that in, in, in another time in another part of this this chat. But Aaron, let's let's take us all the way back because man, you have had a, you know you've had a storied career. You you are I mean you are a name in Canadian country music. You are truly one of the names that stands out, especially because of the the longevity of your career and how much great music you've put out and how much touring you've done from coast to coast and all over this country. So, I mean, I'd like to, and this is something that I don't even know about you. So maybe take us like all the way back. Like, how do you get into music? When do you first start falling in love with music as a sort of profession or even just as something to fall in love with? Yeah. You know, since I was a little kid, I always wanted to be um, an entertainer. I didn't really understand what I wanted to be, whether it was an actor. I remember watching TV shows and seeing little kids on TV and being like, I want to be on that too. Uh, and literally four years old. And then uh, sports came along as a as a young fella at six or seven years old. I was playing hockey at a high level at that age even. Um, mm. And it really turned into, I want to be a hockey player. I want to be a professional hockey player. Didn't care about the money, obviously. Just wanted to play hockey. It was my first true love. I always say that. Hockey was my first true love. Um, and somewhere along the way, uh, I got into acting again. And I did some uh, little parts here and there in uh, TV shows and commercials and, and movies, but nothing big. And then I didn't really like the process. I wasn't enjoying it that much, but um, I was married at 19 and had my first child at 20 years old. And uh, I had to get a job. So I was scrambling with without a high school education. I only finished grade 11. I didn't know what I was going to do. I, did, I had no um, trade skill. I had nothing. And it just happened. In 1991, my, my wife and I just moved back from a town that I found zero success finding work. And uh, 
my mom was like, we got to go to this new karaoke thing. This is 1991. Keep in mind, it's brand new. Karaoke was. Because your sister wants to sing. And my sister loves singing. And I always thought, you know, my sister will become a singer. So my then wife, my new wife, and I had gone to this karaoke in uh, Cloverdale, BC. And my mom said, uh, Kim's going to get up and sing, my sister. Kim's going to get up and sing. You, you got to go up and do a song. I'm like, I don't sing. I don't, I'm not a singer. She's like, no, just sing me a song. And she whined to me <clears throat> enough that actually got me to go up and sing a song. And not only did I sing a song, but I chose probably the toughest song you could ever choose for karaoke, for anything. Uh, and it was a song called uh, Waiting for a Girl Like You from Foreigner. Wow. Ambitious. Very yeah, ambitious. I didn't know. I, I was like, well, I love that song. I guess I'll go up and sing it. <laughs> like, I'll pick that then, one, the hardest one. <laughs> I get up there and I'm, I'm literally standing there going, I've been waiting. <laughs> so that's what I thought it sounded like to me. And lo and behold, the guy who uh, who was running, he was the host of the karaoke show. He was a British guy named Marshall Spooner. And Marshall came up to me and said, would you like to work for me? And I was like, doing what? In my head, I'm thinking, I'll help you load your speakers up to your car after or something? I don't know. What am I going to do? He said, no, you're a really good singer. And uh, I was shocked. I had no idea. I mean, I, I just, I was not a singer as far as I was concerned. So... I ended up, well, first of all, you sh <clears throat> should have seen the look on my sister's face. She was a little PO'd because you stole her spotlight. <laughs> I did. <laughs> you know, it was her dream to be a singer and mine was just, <laughs> I don't know, find, get a job at a gas station. That was the only real hope I had at that point. Anyway, so I, I worked for Marshall for about six months doing this and singing some nights, four hours a night. So you'd, you'd get there, you know, Seven o'clock, set up your stuff. Eight o'clock, you go on. You're hoping that people are going to put up these little cards and with their name and song. And some nights, nobody would do it. And I'd be sitting there singing. People would start coming in to just listen to me sing. And I'm like, oh, no, I need you guys to sing because it's four hours long. So I started <laughs> learning songs and whatever. And and, uh, and then my mom, a couple of years later, actually I started my own business and made crazy money at karaoke back in 1992, 93. And then in 1993, my mom, she, uh, do we have all day? I hope so. Yeah. We got absolutely. time. She entered me into a talent search without telling me. It was at Gabby's actually. Gabby's, yeah. uh, you're very familiar with Dave. Yeah. And uh, she entered me into a talent search and then she told me, she said, well, I, I entered you into this country talent search at Gabby's and I love country music. I was a huge fan of country music before I ever sang any at all actually. So then uh, I was like, well, why did you do that? She said, well, I don't know. Just you know, I, I paid my 20 bucks. You got to go in it. And I was like, okay. So I went into this thing. And I ended up all winning all of the British Columbia legs. And again, never sang with a band. This was the first time. Oh, so you were singing with a band in this contest? First time ever singing wow. with a band, not knowing what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing. And I end up winning all these legs. There's seven legs for BC. Went to the Canadian finals. Did not even place. But I met a young man by the name of Paul Brandt, who was the Alberta rep. I was the BC rep. He was the Alberta rep. And I saw his, his genuine love for doing what he does and his want and need to be a star. And, uh, you know, he said songwriting is really important. He's two years younger than me. He was 21 and I was 23. And he said, oh, I just, I know that songwriting is everything. And I know that all these different you know, things are needed in order to, he plays second at the talent search, but it was because he had his own songs. He knew how to play guitar really well. You know, he had stage and showmanship ability, which I was still kind of new at. So then anyway, jump ahead after that. It was a great experience. And then I was like, I'm going to start a band and started playing, you know, Sundays with this one band, just a joke band, basically a bunch of older guys and this young dude, not knowing what the hell he's doing. So that turned into playing a couple of weeks at a different couple of different bars. And then before you knew it, uh, everything just sort of took off. And from 1993 until uh, 2004, I played in clubs. And that's right. We played in British Columbia. So in the, in the mid to late nineties then, so you're at, so for the listeners, Gabby's is like kind of was a legendary honky tonk uh, outside of Vancouver and sort of the country. And 
of course, Roosters as well, Aaron, which I know you're you're very familiar with. Um, now, when you were when you were doing the band stuff there, if correct me if I'm wrong, but were you also DJing as well as playing in the band? Yeah, I was a I would run the Sunday Jam at okay. Gabby's, and then I got asked to DJ during the week, so I would do like a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then Greg Holiday, who was the DJ main DJ mm-hmm. there, he would do the rest of the week. Okay. That was a real fun time. So I just, I kind of cut my teeth at doing some DJ work, but it was Roosters in Pitt Meadows where I was DJing. That's where I got a DJ job there first and then got my band playing there every couple weeks a year. And then I was DJing and playing with the band sometimes. So I was literally running from the DJ booth all across the dance floor to the other side to the stage, playing with the band, jumping off stage after playing with the band, going back to the DJ booth playing I mean, that's, cr- that's crazy for, for anyone who like does Broadway or like, or does like, you know, Frankie, you know, you know, the vibe down there. I mean, could you imagine running straight from like the sound booth to the stage back to the sound booth, like trying to keep that going all night? I would be shocked watching that. I would be like, oh my God, look, the DJ is running to play with the band. <laughs> it was fun. There's a you know, fly like, in here. Sorry, I'm, I'm not like this shocked by your story. There's a fly in here that's like attacking me. So if you see me flailing, like just continue doing what you're doing. Sorry. <laughs> that was the highlight of the show so far. No, I, you know, it was really fun doing that. I, I, I miss a part of me misses playing in the clubs, but also those sort of situations where, you know, it was, it was reliant on, on me to make sure both jobs got done. And I didn't want to hire somebody. It was no point to bring somebody in just to DJ. And, you know, I thought I could do both jobs and I did. And it was, it was just a fun experience. And, and you know what? The other thing too is that, Playing in the clubs for 10 years, first of all, over 10 years. And having that DJ experience, it gave me it gave me the ability to go on a stage and put on a show, not mm-hmm. just stand there and sing, not be uncomfortable, not be awkward. I, you know, if you come to one of my shows now, you get pretty raw me. And I'm, I have to admit, it's really funny at times and goofy and 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 exciting and and just a bit of a. I don't know. It's a bit of an explosion. And that's what I want. I knew that people want that. Yeah. And uh, so that, that gave me the experience uh, and the ability to do what I do now. Were you, and so by the mid to late nineties, are you right starting to write your own material too? Or are you still just playing? Like, have you started to think about being a writer as well as an artist? Yeah. I, everybody kept telling me, you gotta be a writer. You gotta write, gotta write, gotta write. And the first song I ever wrote, I co-wrote with Paul Brandt actually. Okay, it was nice. called City Cowboy. <laughs> Keep in mind, 1993, I mean, you know, I didn't understand what a good title was and uh, (laughs) not that I do now, but, uh, you know, but yeah, it was really important. I kept, I kept getting people telling me, you've got to be a writer, you know, not only are you going to make money at it, um, but you will also be a little more respected in the industry if you write your songs, which I kept trying to do. And I'll be honest with you, this might be a, a, a podcast of honesty here. It that is. it is. I'll, I'll be honest with you that sometimes I can't stand writing. Oh, interesting. I, I cannot stand it. It's so mentally exhausting yeah. for me because my brain, well, like I said, I, I only finished grade 11. <laughs> so my brain <laughs> works a little slower sometimes and trying to find the right words or, you know, a word can literally drain me. And I remember even uh, even as recent as 2019, when I was in Nashville, uh, writing with a bunch of writers down there who are really great and and they have a severe severe passion for it, which is amazing to see and watch. But when I'm trying so hard to tr- think of words, it literally can just exhaust me, and I get back to my hotel or wherever I'm staying, and, and literally felt like I was drained of everything I yeah. had knowing that I had to get up the next day and do it two more times with two to four other people. Yeah, that's, I mean, and that's a real thing too. I think that, I mean, I think all of us sitting here can, can talk about, like, you know, you leave a, right. Sometimes you just grind and so hard. And then, then the problem that the scary thing is then it can, kind of can hurt the song, but not in like a way that the song's bad, but more just like, you're just exhausted with that song, regardless of how good or bad it is. You're just kind of like, Oh, you hate could, it later. Cause yeah. it was such a struggle making it. That is it totally, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a kick, right? I mean, yeah. And I can give it, I can give the perfect example actually. Um, so a song on my big wheel, which was a big deal. It, it turned mm-hmm. out to be a, at the time it was my 
highest charting single up until 2019, actually. It went to number mm-hmm. two. I'll tell you the joke behind that in a minute. So with that song, <clears throat> I wrote it with Mitch Merritt and Daryl Burgess in 2005. And after, while we're writing it, I was getting frustrated. But after we wrote it, Daryl created this little uh, demo for it. It was, um, I, I hated the song. We're, Mitch and I are driving back to the hotel. And I'm like, this song sucks. I mean, it's terrible. He's like, no, it's going to be a hit song. And I'm like, well, it rhymes with hit, but it's not. <laughs> it's not a hit. He's like, no, it's going to be a big hit song for us. Trust me. So we get back to Vancouver. Uh, we're trying out all these different songs and people are just loving this big wheel song. I hated singing it. It just wasn't fun. You know, it was one of those things where I'm like, this is, I, I don't find anything good about this song at all. And I co-wrote wow. it. So skip ahead to the record labels. Like you got to record the song. It's so good. We're going to put it on the album. We're going to name the album big wheel. You're going to have a huge hit on your hands. And like my, and this is one of those points too, where I'm like, I didn't even really try when I sang the vocal because it, you know, part of me just didn't care. And then uh, it goes to radio and it goes up the charts. Like we've never seen before with any other single. And it went up to number two. And I think it was Keith Urban or somebody who had like a super hit song and just couldn't crack that number one. And, uh, but I always joke that, I was right the whole time, actually. It was the number two. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. It wasn't. It didn't go to number one. Oh, my gosh. That, that Actually, that's that's fascinating that even like, because by that point, so that's uh, Big Wheels, like what, 06, I think it came? Yeah, it was 05, something like 06? Yeah, 06. So, that, so, I mean, by that point, you've already had like quite a bit of a catalog coming out already. I mean, yeah. let, like, let's go and let's even go back to that, the earlier stuff. Like when does your first kind of effort, like when are you sitting in roosters running between the DJ booth and the stage for putting on these four hour shows for getting paid the same that probably people get paid today at the same bars. And, and when are you like, Hey man, I got to get my stuff out. I got to get, I got to get some material out. Well, it was 1998. Uh, I went to a writing session with, uh, this guy, Bruce Kilby in Langley, BC. And he invited this young guitar player guy named Mitch Merritt. So the three of us were writing and, and I'm like, Oh, this guy seems to play guitar pretty good. So Mm -hmm. I asked him to join the band, jump ahead to uh, where he's like, we got to turn this thing into a business. Like you got to let's capitalize on your thing. So then we got into the studio, started recording in 1999. And by 2000, we had my first single, to radio which was called heart like a hurricane and listening back now like you know cringeworthy that's the best <laughs> way to put it uh oh, just listening to all those songs on that album including heart like a hurricane which is great it was a pretty good song for the time right. but i just sound absolutely yeah. horrible i don't know what the hell i'm doing <laughs> at all i had no clue but yeah that was when everything started was um uh, 1998, 1999, then into 2000, that kicked everything off. And I played the clubs for four years after that because I had to. I wasn't making any money. So, uh, Frankie? Should we play it? Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's take a listen. Let's listen back. Yeah. Okay. Everyone, embrace the suck. This is Heart Like a Hurricane. If only the video was on to see Aaron hidden in his hands right now. Very amazing. Sound like I have a cold. When you're on the outside looking in, just when you think you've got her figured out. I'm freezing. I have no idea about freezing. I like that lift. I like that hard. Causing everyone around her pain. But in the eye of the storm, really? there's a place that's safe and warm in her heart like a hurricane. Hard like a hurricane. What is it about it that you dislike? Oh, yeah, right. Yes. 
my vocals. I can't stand my vocals. And even, I think even the uh, arrangement of the song, I listened to it and it's like, that is, that would, to me, that sounded old when we recorded it. You know, mm. it just, it didn't keep up or it didn't, it didn't stand the test of time for one, but it also, even at that point in 1990 or 2000, when it came out, it was still just, it didn't compare to what was out there, you know, Tim McGraw and Faith Hill and, and all these Alan Jackson's, all these great songs that they kept coming out with, with amazing recordings. To me, it was just, it is cringeworthy whenever I hear it. And if anybody plays, even while you were playing it there, my face, my face went flush. I was just like, <laughs> it did. I could see it on the sound. It did. It turned a certain shade of red. It did. Yeah. You, you were saying uh, your bassist wrote the song. So I, I had this basis. He was from the East Coast, uh, Nova Scotia, I believe. And then he moved to BC to play music and played with some big bands and then had a bunch of kids and slowed everything down, decided I'll just play the clubs. And he joined my band. His name's George Wolf, a really great guy, awesome guy. And uh, he wrote that song. He brought it to me. I was like, this is a great song and wanted to record it. And we did. And it uh, it was my first official radio song ever oh that's fascinating april 4th 2000 i heard it on the radio for the my my voice on radio for the first time ever did uh did radio give it any love or was it like the usual kind of first release sort of like just getting used to hearing no for the first time nope it didn't get <laughs> it got played <laughs> once <laughs> oh no Oof. Uh, no that's not true i'm kidding it it actually got a it was my first like top 100 hit it did make the chart uh but it was all small market radio stations except for jr country in vancouver they were playing uh they played it on light rotation which was like That's once a good. day but I, hey that was my first song ever i'm happy yeah. with so so you so you release that song and it's kind of you're kind of releasing now that's not off an album right that's just like you were just releasing a single or something like that no that's on an album uh okay. we kept there was a song that song uh like hurricane and then the last goodbye, which I wrote, uh, was my second song, technically on radio, released. Uh, those two songs were added to an album called "Consider This." Right. Okay, that makes sense. So, so that that ends up becoming part of "Consider This" because I I always consider this was always for the first my first recollection of you as yeah. the as an artist. And so you have considered this. And then you have what, something going on here. I actually have your uh, discography in front of me because this is actually walking through my life of like sort of like listening to country music too. So I'm looking at like the years, but something going on here has my favorite song, still to this day, my favorite AP song, My Way. Oh, cool. And, and, and I believe if I'm not mistaken that Derek Rattan is a co-writer on My Way. Yeah, Derek Rattan and Tim Taylor, both from Ontario, Nashville guys now. Obviously Derek Rattan is Derek Rattan, but yeah. uh, Tim Taylor... He wrote a bunch of songs that were big Canadian hits. I don't, I don't think he's ever had any American singles, and if he did, they were, they were maybe top forty. Did you did you co-write My Way, or did that one just come across your desk as a pitch? No, that was okay. The story behind My Way is actually pretty funny, and that's how I met Derek, and we ended up co-writing together, and and Tim Taylor too. We wrote a bunch of songs with Tim Taylor, so we went into the studio. Went into the studio in 2001 with Tom McKillop producing. Nice. And uh, we had a list of 10 songs that we were going to record and an alternate list of five in case we had to drop any of those, any of the 10 original songs, which does happen. And it did happen. So two of the songs in that top 10 got picked up by other artists and we weren't allowed to record them because I'm a nobody. The Americans, Americans picked them up. So anyway, on the alternate list, there was my top five so from top to bottom and on the bottom of that list was my way and after the first day of recording before we found out we had to drop any other songs we did something that we figured out three days later and that was we recorded my way and we went through the whole process of you know two and a half hours of of laying the tracks with the band and uh doing a few overdubs blah 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 and two days later, Tom and I realized, wait a second, My Way was on the bottom of the alternate list. Why did we record that song? And honestly, couldn't figure it out. To this day, we don't know why we did. We just did. That's crazy. So it was like accidentally somehow in the rotation for the beds for that day? 
Absolutely 100% accidental, was not meant to be recorded, was probably, <laughs> was never intended to be recorded, to be honest, because it was fifth on that alternate list. Don't tell the writers. <laughs> yeah. And then, We're going to find out now. <laughs> it turns out, well, I've told both of them and they're both like, really? What? Why didn't you record our song? I was like, I loved the song. I did, but I, I just didn't know if it was me or not. And uh, wow. so it went to radio because the record label loved the song. So they decide we're going to release it and shoot a video for it, see what happens. And it was the most played country song in Canada that year in 2003. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think it, so it charted top 10, I think, right? I think, yeah, I don't know if it was my first top 10, but I think it did go to like eight. And so, and that, so that's something going on here. And then you have big wheel. So you yeah. kind of like at this point, you're like, I, I mean, you're releasing stuff that's like just shooting, right? Like you're firing on all cylinders. You're getting taught. Like it, it looks, if you look at the list of this, it looks like everything you're putting out is like hitting top 10, basically besides I think John Roland Wood, which is a dope song. I love that song too, by the way. But, but I mean, it seemed like you were just putting out gold after gold after gold. Yeah. Everything just seemed to be hitting. Um, I, you know, I was the new guy, uh, all the people that had, you know, I was on, the, I was on the, in that small little group of brand new artists now you seem to have a new artist every year. Whereas yeah, for us back then, it was like every five or six years, you'd get a group of new artists. So 2004 for me was New Frontier was, you know, I won a couple of Canadian Country Music Awards because of, you know, independent uh, awards for artists and whatever else. Single, I think it was for New Frontier. So that was just like, what? You know, I'm shocked. I'm just happy to be there. You know, happy I'm nominated. The next year, yeah, it was just the the wheel kept rolling, and then Big Wheel came along, and like I told you, Hold My Beer was a joke again, not meant to be recorded. People said they convinced me to do it. Turns out it's my legacy to this day, you know, of who I am. People don't yeah. people don't even know my name, but they know the song. I've been to Juno Awards, and people would be like, "Oh, you're the Hold My Beer guy? I love that song." Oh my gosh. Don't know your name. I don't know who you are, but man, I love that song. I'm going, okay, that's great. Um, so then everything just sort of took off and kept going and kept rolling. And I was, I was loving it. You know, to be honest though, the sad thing about that is that I got too caught up in it and I, Oh really? Yeah. I, I missed a lot and I, you know, I'm not a drug addict. I'm not an alcoholic. I've never been that type of person, but I let it get to me. I'm an attention addict. I love mm -hmm. attention. I'm a Leo, mm -hmm. true Leo, you know, mm -hmm. August 2nd. Like I, I love the, uh, getting adoration and, and, you know, I guess being put on a pedestal at times. And, and the problem was, is that I didn't appreciate it and I didn't stop and go instead of going, okay, what's next? Okay. Well, where else are we going? What else are we doing? And I forgot about everything that we just did. You know, I forgot about people. I forgot about places. I forgot about everything, all the little nuances to those cool things that happen when you have that success. So I'm, I'm sad about that, but I've changed my ways since yeah. 16. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you, do you, so like, is this like something during that time? Because, and then you had Big Wheel, then you had thankful right mm -hmm. are, are you saying during this time you felt like looking back like you felt a little lot like you think that you're not lost but maybe that's, i can't think of a better word but more just like not not embracing the positives as much as you should or like yeah like most people would say oh poor you no i'm, I'm not looking for any sympathy i just regret at times the way i treated that success because it was it was awesome. I wasn't an asshole. I wasn't a jerk to anybody. Um, it was, it was really, it was a really great time for me. But the problem was, is I didn't, I never took the time to reflect for years. Like we're mm. talking 2004 to 2010, especially 
And I would even say up until 2016, because I was trying so hard to get back into the industry at that point. But 04 to 2010, I, I just, it's a blur. Like I don't mm. remember much of anything other than yeah. feeling the feeling of what's next. Yeah. Where else are we going? What else yeah. are we doing? And then forgetting about everything that you just did and forgotten to this day in a lot of circumstances. Like I don't remember playing festivals. I don't remember playing fairs. I don't remember award shows. You're really on like a rocket ride. You're just like actually on this rocket ship, just shooting as fast as possible through sort of the Canadian country scene. Yeah. And with all these really great things passing you by and you just, all you're doing is focused on the future as opposed to being like, that's awesome. I'm not going to forget that. That's awesome. I'm not going to forget that. Right. Yeah. My biggest regret in this industry is that, and you know yeah. what? Time with family, friends, that's all gone too. I didn't make as much time as I should. And, and you know, it's interesting too, cause you're, you're still a father at this point, right? I mean, I mean, not still a father, but you're a father at this point. So I'm you still am at this point too. <laughs> still a father at this point too. Yeah. That's this, that's a great comment, David. Yeah. Uh, Funny how that works. You I, know? Get, I get what you mean though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, I had, uh, at that point I'm, I have all three sons that I have now. Um, and they were all growing, you know, Mason's my youngest and he was, in 04, he was two. And, and from two till six, I missed a lot with him, you know, because I was like, I got to get back on the road. That's, you know, I'm, I'm, I need to go do things instead of being here. And yeah, I love you very much. And I want to spend time and I'd spend time with him, but it's not like I just neglected him. But at the same time, I didn't spend the time that I should have and made it more memorable for both of us. And you know, the thing is, I think, and I think that that's not an uncommon feeling when, when, like a lot of people who've had a lot of success look back and I've, you know, just like even thinking like Derek Rattan's a really good example. He's a mentor of mine. And, and even he's like mentioned, you know, he's like some, he hasn't, when he gets, when he got some of his earliest big hits, he never, you know, he, he often didn't like sit there and go like, this is special. He was more like, what's next? And that's, I mean, that's a curse. I think of all of us in this industry anyways, like we're always trying to like, yeah, okay. I, I did good there, but can we do even better again? Right. And so you kind of keep that, those eyes on the road and, you know, with time and, with maturity, you know, and wisdom, I think then all of a sudden that start, stuff starts to clear up. And and before we move to sort of like that reflection phase, I would love it. it could you just tell us how Hold My Beer came about? Just to like, because so Frankie, I, I don't know if you know, so Hold My Beer is like Aaron's like, that's the song at, at every show that people are pumped. Like all, all of his songs are always great, but boy, Hold My Beer is the song that just like people are getting ready for when that when that starts to come out. You know, it's become yeah. his iconic track. Um, and maybe, Aaron, you could just tell us how it all came about. Yeah, it, it, to this day, it's still, you know, that's from 06. It's almost 20 years old now. It's like a, I, I liken it to uh, Dust in the Bottle. I mean, not of that caliber. That's a huge, massive international success. But in Canada, I'm the hold my beer guy and always have been. So in 2005, I was in Nashville writing with um, Mitch, who is also my business partner and guitar player, manager, co-manager, etc. So we did a lot of things together, like writing songs with different artists and songwriters. So Derek, we had written a couple songs with Derek before, and they they did really well. Recorded them, may not have released all of them, but they were good songs. So Derek is our, always our go-to guy. So we had a session one time at Sony ATV and uh, we're sitting in one of the small rooms and uh, poor, I remember it was so hot. And even though it was air conditioned, we we're still sweating and just not feeling good. So for about an hour and a half, we sat there and, you know, just shot the crap and, and said, you know, how you doing? What's going on? And then we tried to sit down and write and, trying to come up with hook lines and titles and nothing stuck. All of us were like, nah, I don't want to write that. No, we throw out these, these uh, title ideas and nothing was really sticking. So then um, we're like, well, let's just have a coffee. Let's relax and get our minds off of this. And it popped into my head, this phrase that I'd seen on the back of a t-shirt when I was DJing at Roosters about 1997 huh. So this is 2005, we're writing this song. And I had not thought about this phrase forever. And it just popped into my head. And I was like, oh, I don't think I should say this. This is stupid. No, this is dumb. No, I'm not going to say it. And then all of us are, you know, talking and throwing ideas around. And nothing's going. I'm like, 
So I just blurted it out. I said, hold my beer while I kiss your girlfriend. Derek looked at me and he just hit his guitar and <laughs> right now today. Doom, 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 doom. And within wow. about an hour and a half, we had wrote, written this uh, really ridiculously stupid song. As far as I'm concerned, it, you know, like I'm like, this is this is funny, but I never recorded. But man, it's super funny, and I think people would find it hilarious. But or they'd be choked. One of the two. It was a good thing you said it. It was a really good thing. So then we go back to Langley. Mitch and I go back to Langley, and and we have an acoustic show that we're playing all of, showcasing all the tunes at. Uh, like we did with Big Wheel, because we wrote Big Wheel on that trip as well. So we got back to Langley, and we had this uh, acoustic show, and my mom was coming, who's like my biggest fan. I swear, I could sing Mary Had a Little Lamb, and she'd be like, you got to record that. So good. Uh-huh. <laughs> Enter that into a talent contest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then my grandma walks in behind her, and my grandma's like my biggest critic. She loved me and loved my music, but she was my biggest critic, and you know, all the time being, you should smile more when you're on stage. <laughs> I was like, okay, uh, and she was right. So anyway, I'm like, there's two people in this bar. One of them's you. Uh, I don't know why, and the other guy's passed out. So I don't know why. I need to smile more. <laughs> but anyway, I thought she was gonna hate this "Hold My Beer" song because, you know, it's my grandma. She's my worst, my biggest critic, I should say. And uh, so we went. And I went over to my grandma's table and my mom was there and they're both like, oh, you sound so wonderful, honey. Your voice is beautiful. <laughs> and then, uh, and my grandma says, and I love that Hold My Beer song. So I was like, well, if my oh, grandma wow. likes it, wow. everybody's going to like this song. So we recorded it and it went out on radio. And before I know it, it it's it, the first time I ever heard it. Because what we were trying to do is teach audiences the song because we didn't think anybody knew it. So we went to this this uh, festival in Manitoba uh, and in Dauphin, Dauphin, Manitoba. And I was on before Terry Clark and I'm like, okay, we got to teach people this song. Terry Clark's going to blow them out of the water. I want to see if they, you know, get the idea of the song. So we're going to tell them, all right, you don't know this song, but all you got to do is repeat after me, hold, hold my, my beer, beer. So we'd plan this all out. And I get backstage uh, after my set hoping for an encore because Big Wheel was a smash hit. So I'm like, all right. And then Carmen was my tour manager, Carmen Choney. And she's like, you've got to take your earbuds out. I'm like, huh? She said, take your earbuds out. So I took them out and I could hear the whole crowd. There's 18, 20,000 people going, oh, my bear, oh, my bear. (laughs) Over and over and over. And Terry Clark is standing over at the side. She's just looking at me like, what is going on? <laughs> so I was like, okay, this is this is gonna do all right. And it's oh my uh, god, it, it's paid the mortgage ever since. <laughs> Dude, that's a great story, man. That's a, such a well, it's so funny how a song, gosh, you just never really know, do you? You'd never yeah. really know. And like you tell the story with like Big Wheel, and now with Hold My Beer, and it's yeah. almost like you really like, I mean, it's just so hard to tell what songs will resonate, right? Yeah, it's like a whole bunch of happy accidents. Yeah. And I just consider that song an a adult nursery rhyme. I mean, it yeah, is. It really is. Nursery rhyme for adults and it worked. So, I mean, that's incredible. So at this point, Hold My Beer comes out. You're, you know, then you got Let's Get Rowdy. Yeah. Hellbent for Buffalo. Like, how do I get there? I mean, yeah. there, there's just so many great songs that are coming out. Um, And you kind of spoke about that a 2000 kind of, what'd you say, four to 2010 period. Yeah. Um, it, it, What happened? Because like you get signed to 604 Records, right? Correct. Yeah, 604 Records is Chad Kroger's record label, and it's based out of Vancouver and has a bunch of different country and rock artists and stuff on it. How does that come about? Is that this is this is at the peak of your kind of thing at that moment mm-hmm. at that phase, right? I think it came out because they wanted to work with uh, more local artists that they thought were, you know, that they thought were talented. Uh, that's kind of the way they put it to us. Um, 604 was, yeah, we only had the one album with them with okay. Thankful, but yeah, uh, it was the problem with Thankful though. I think I, I, I can take the main responsibility for it is that I wanted to go, okay, well, we did Hold My Beer. We did Big Wheel. We did all these fun songs. I'm going to do a serious album. Right. Stupid idea. Really? Oh, no. The album was okay, but the only song that resonated on that album was Let's Get Rowdy. <laughs> and it's yeah. a party song. Uh, yeah. I should have read my audience better, and I didn't. I definitely do now and have for the last almost 10 years. But 
at the time, it was like, no, I want them to see the, the more sensitive side of me, the more serious side of me. And it was just <laughs> the dumbest thing because I'm not like that ever. Really. I mean, I am, but uh, to a degree. When I'm putting on a show, when I'm in front of a crowd, no, nah, it's it's go time, party time. And that's really what it's all about. So 604, was, they were happy with the album, but they weren't ecstatic about it. So mm-hmm. they didn't, it didn't really turn into much. And then, and then everything hit the ditch after that. Would you, um, would you be open to talking a little bit about the ditch period? Absolutely. Could you, could yeah. you walk us through like what, when you're looking back on that now, the story, like the the story to you, how you see it? Yeah, you know, I think that was a part of me that was like, I'm better than this. I'm better than these people I'm working with. And within a, I think maybe six month period, I uh, I fired Mitch from playing guitar, being my manager. I fired six oh four in two thousand nine. Yeah, within a six month period, I I thought that nobody was doing me right. Mm. And I up and fired or replaced, you know, just about everybody from management to record label to agent. Wow. I let everybody go. And, you know, with Jim Cressman, for example, in 2009, the same thing ended 2009, I decided to part ways. And it was a mistake. Uh, you know, thinking back on it now, um, I wouldn't say all of what I did was a mistake, but I don't think it was um, well thought out. I didn't do, I think that's another part of where I was going <clears throat> personality wise, both professionally and personally, I was getting way ahead of myself and thinking that I was better than that, but better mm-hmm. than the way I was being treated or better than the, the attention I was getting from my labeled management and agent. And I was wrong. I have to admit, um, hundred percent wrong. So that was tough to come back from because I think in a lot of ways, I wouldn't say it was done on, I can't say that it was done on purpose, but I always think, well, everybody was pretty pissed off of me and I kind of deserved to wow. be treated yeah. the way I was. Plus the industry in general, including radio was like, what's wrong with this guy? And there wasn't anything wrong with me. I just needed to kind of right the ship, bring it back to the basics, get back to the roosters sort of mentality and realizing, Hey, you know, you were a DJ and you were, you know, you laid carpet, you cleaned carpet, you did all those things. You need to go back to those basics to relearn who you are and, and to reinstill those values for me as a person personally. And, uh, you know, that's when everything, everything hit the ditch for probably four to five years, uh, Mm -hmm. after, yeah, 2010 and helped me become the person I am today, a much better person. I definitely think things out a lot longer. (laughs) I don't knee jerk react to anything. (laughs) And, uh, I realize, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for, it's ironic that the name was, the album name was thankful. And that was the last album of that person because I am thankful that I actually went through that experience to help me over the last eight years. Was there a moment during, let's say, well, let's call it like this sort of the ditch period, just because we've used that word already. Was there a moment where you realized that you're like, <clears throat> I have to take responsibility for what I like? Because I can imagine in the early part of it, you're maybe angry or you're excited or you're just, you're, you're a mix of emotions, but probably a, a, none of those emotions in the early period are like looking at yourself necessarily yet. And then later in that period, was there a moment where you looked in the mirror and you're like, wait a second, I have to actually take responsibility for, for what, for, for my growth, for my personal growth and, and, and whatnot. Yeah. I wouldn't say there was that aha moment that, you know, WTF moment of what are you doing? I think it was a slow progression because things weren't going like I thought they would go. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the coolest things that happened to me back then was seeing a guy uh, named Dallas Smith, who uh, I met him at a you know real major turning point in his life and career. He was you know no longer playing with default, uh, not really not really doing anything. They weren't recording. There was nothing new from him, and he wanted to get into country. And uh, he played me the music 
somebody somewhere and all these yeah. songs that eventually would become massive hits. And I told him, I'm like, you're going to change Canadian country music sound mm -hmm. on your own. Like you have it. And I got jealous at first because I'm like, he's, he's working with the guy that I was actually going to be working with Joey Moy before I ended cut my ties with 604. And he was, Joey was between him and Rick Rubin were my dream guys that I wanted yeah. to produce. So Dallas was working with Joey. Scott Cook was engineering, mixing, editing. And uh, I'm like, man, that's, that's a dream team. But you know what? I love Dallas as a, as a person. He's an amazing guy. And I, my, there was a hint of jealousy. But at the same time, I was super happy for him because, you know, it was a pretty low period for him, I think, at that time. So it kind of motivated me. I have to admit that when I saw that success happening, I'm like, dude, you're an idiot to myself and saying be more like that guy like he's he's been here he's been here and now he's going back up there and it's not about gaining the success it's about you know getting back to the basics that's what dallas had to do was get to get back to the basics and he turned it up to a level that i, I haven't seen in country music in canada for ever i think it's yeah. he's the first real major turnaround success story and uh, it motivated me to get back on the horse and actually make an effort and, and make amends to those people who I felt that, you know, I did wrong and, uh, you know, go through the court system and do all the legal BS that I had to do and, and get my, my life personally and my life professionally back together. And it, and it worked. Yeah, that's incredible. And I mean, because then 2016, I mean, dirt yeah. rode in them. You know, when a mama's boy meets a daddy's girl, I mean, and then of course, 2018, better when I do the big number one. I mean, yeah. like after all, like talk about, I mean, let's just like, you go into this phase, then you come out, you're kind of inspired mm -hmm. by Dallas and then you start releasing great songs again. And then you get your first number one. I mean, what yeah. is like, tell us that, tell us that, that would have been a vindication. What a, what a crazy like thing, right? Yeah. And who knew? <clears throat> um, so in 2014, I got to work with Scott Cook, who, as aforementioned, uh, Dallas's editor on his music and mixing and engineering. Um, and Dallas suggested him. He's like, why don't you get Scott to record some, some music for you? And up until that point, I used Tom McKillop exclusively from 2001 to 2010, pretty much, other than one album, the Thankful album, actually. So I was like a new producer. And I thought, no. Uh, I was working with Jim Cressman again uh, as an agent. And he said, yeah, I think it's a good idea. Why not? Try it. So I did. And we recorded a song called Boat on the Water, which did really well. Had a video for it. Out of the Blue was another song that I recorded with Scott. A bunch of bunch of songs. And it kind of got me back up there. It was like, Boat on the Water was a top 30, maybe. And yeah. I think then Out of the Blue was a top 20. And then mm -hmm. with 2016... Some crazy stuff happened in 2016 with this song Dirt Road Anthem, which I loved, but I was like, everybody's going to call it Dirt Road Anthem. And I think that's a Jason Aldean song, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But they didn't. Everybody seemed to really love the song. Radio loved it. It was my first top 10 single since 2008, I believe. This is 2016. So we're looking at eight years between real radio success. And it went to six or something like that. Yeah. So then I'm like, well, this is great. So I, I did what every new artist should do. I went on a radio tour. So I drove across the country in, in, in Canada, all of Canada, and I did a radio tour. So I stopped at every radio station that I could. And I was on the road for, oh, I think it was 38 days driving. Wow. And if you know Canada, it's a massive country. It's bigger than the States. It doesn't have as many people. It doesn't have as many uh, cities and many as many radio stations, but it has a lot of room. Uh, so crossing the country was not an easy thing. But and you got to understand too. I was 45 at the time in 2016, turning 46 that year. But it was I was 45 years old, and I'm like, they're not going to care that I'm out here. You know, yeah, you've had your success. You know, beat it. They're good. And at this point, Dirt Road Enum wasn't. Uh, wasn't actually up, you know, wasn't top 20 at that point. And by the time I was done the tour, it was top 15, I think. 
So it really helped. It's a smart thing that everybody should do, no matter what level you are in your career, because it's a great experience and the radio stations love it. They love that you come in, you, you know, you're making an effort. I, I made an effort, a huge effort, because not because to save my career and get this resurgence and you know become a renaissance man. Nothing to do with that. It was just because I think it, this might be the last time I ever do this kind of thing. So right. I'm going to do it. And I think uh, that just translated and it turned into my first top 10 in eight years and then came, yeah, uh, worth a shot. Um, yep. I, I can't remember the order, but yeah, Mama's Boy. The, the list went on and it just kept going up and up and up. Um, I, I, so I have a couple of questions about uh, two of the songs. So I, but I want to start with um, When a Mama's Boy Meets a Daddy's Girl because I think what's really interesting about that song is the music video you did for it. Yeah. And, and would you maybe talk a little bit about the surprise ending of the music video and your choice to do a music video like that? Yeah. Um, there was a guy. This is going to start off as a weird story. So there was a guy online <laughs> who, who made a comment about me. And he said, uh, I've never seen a cowboy with two earrings. You know, uh, I was like, oh, well, maybe you should get out more often. And normally I don't even reply to that stuff, but nice. something in me. And he started, you know, this, we ended up getting into this little bit of a confrontation. And I shut him down. And basically I, I called him out for, you know, I said, you know, I'm not gay, but if I was, would you have a problem with that? Why would you have a problem with that? So it turned into this hatred thing, and uh, the, we had we we're coming up with ideas uh, for the video shoot for Mama's Boy. So when a Mama's Boy meets a Daddy's Girl is the is the entire title of the song, co-written by Aaron Goodman, by the way. Um, oh, nice! Shout out, Aaron. Yeah, and uh, I was like, well, I want to do a video for this, and and people were going, oh, you should do this and do that, and do this, and the video director was like, you should do this, and I said, no. Said I want to do all those pieces, but I want to have a, an ending that most people aren't going to expect. And it was two fathers uh, welcoming their baby girl through a certain yeah. mother, and uh, it was a bit of a shock. And I said I just wanted to kind of you know throw it in that guy's face, and yeah. it, was, it was amazing because the response on it was incredible. People loved the video; they thought it was beautiful. But then the ending was a surprise ending and I didn't read one bad comment and everybody said thank you for including the LGBTQ plus yeah. uh, wow. community so I just thought it was important it wasn't just a message it was also a you know see you're kind of out of touch yeah I love that story because I think you were right at the forefront of country music because country music has come very late to accepting the LGBT population yeah. and it still struggles with it as well mm -hmm. but you were you were kind of one of the first people I know in Canada who made a big, bold statement about it. And that's pretty impressive. Well, thanks. And then the fates, the gods reward you with a number one. Uh, tell us about better when I do tell us about the, tell us about how that comes about. And then like what you were thinking when it, when it reached that, that pinnacle. It was one of those moments where it's like, what? I remember Jim Cressman called me April 2nd, 2019. And he called me in the morning and he said, you're number one. I was like, what? He said, you're number one. I said, I'm number one. Thank you. <laughs> he said, no, you're number one on the radio, your song. Better want to do is number one today. I was like, what? That's crazy. Cool. I'll call you later. <laughs> and I went back to sleep. And then I woke up and it was like, what? You know, I woke up like a couple hours later. I thought it was. Did I dream that? It was a dream. Yeah, I was like, did that really happen? And uh, sure enough, yeah. I mean, again, going by age, you know, I was forty-eight, turning forty-nine that year, and being like, how is this possible? How did this possibly happen? That it took me what twenty some odd years for this to happen, you know, uh, to to finally get to that level. People normally get this in their thirties or you know, 20, late twenties. And, uh, it was, you know, it was thanks to great songwriting. Thanks to great production. Thanks to, uh, a great team at the record label. It was great. Thanks to radio, Canadian radio. Thanks to so many different entities. And I think it's, it was up until recently, my favorite vocal that I've ever sang on a song. Right, it just nice. a, it's a fun song to sing even now on stage. 
I think that showed in the studio and people, and that's why, that's why radio bought it. That's why they, you know, understood what I was singing and it just worked. That's amazing, man. I mean, it's a great, and it's a great story and it's just so cool to, you know, even on a personal level to have been able to witness so much of your career and, and as a fan and then uh, a friend and, and, uh, you know, and, and it's been so cool to, kind of go on this journey with you. I, we, I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Um, if you could give the Aaron Brichette that we heard in the first original track there, if you could give them three pieces, that person, three pieces of advice, what would it be? First of all, calm down, <laughs> relax. You'll be fine. Everything's fine. You got a bright future ahead of you and, and understand that. Secondly, when everything gets rolling, don't forget the moments. Pay attention to your family and friends more and uh, enjoy it instead of expecting more all the time. And thirdly, you know, I would probably say learn your craft better. This is going to be something that you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. Learn how to do it better and better every day as opposed to thinking you know it all. Because I did. I thought I, I thought I, just had natural talent that, you know, I'm going to be a huge star. And it took a long time for me to learn my craft and get it down to the point where I could actually take it out and put it in front of thousands of people. If, uh, you know, instead of playing in the clubs and being a live jukebox, which there's nothing wrong with that, but I aspired for more, but I would have, I would have, um, not even told myself, I would have grabbed my own hand and, walk myself to those guitar lessons and those vocal lessons and reading more literature on, on the music industry itself and uh, just, just taking it a lot more serious than I did. Thank you so much for sharing your journey, the ups and downs through the suck and not suck. We really, really appreciate you being so open yeah, and honest. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was fantastic. Nobody said I didn't think I said <laughs> Aaron, you're a legend, buddy. You're an absolute legend. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. This has of been course. absolutely so much fun. Thanks for listening to all my long oh, stories. Dude, that's why we have you on here, man, to hear every story. That's why I, was, I, was, I had a whole list of questions I wanted to ask. <laughs> it was great we got through them. Thanks, Pat. Yeah, man, absolutely. We'll do part yeah, part, two. Well, part two and yeah, after the next, the next batch of songs comes out. For everybody out there in podcast land, I'm David Boris. And I'm Frankie C. And remember, everybody, everybody sucks. sucks. And this is Just Wanna. five days and I got a little work pay in my pocket sun on the windshield slow rolling four wheels my girl beside me hotter than a rocket scanning FM to find the right station a song that's gonna keep me from thinking I just wanna feel it give me something real that makes me forget about the real world right now something that hits right so wanna raise your hand Sometimes I just want to feel it I love everything from Van Halen to Waylon And I spend a little dinner on vinyl If she wants to get down I'll rock out to Brick House Or any of those Timberlake titles There's a time and a place For those love gone wrong songs But when I want to get my groove on I just want to feel it, give me something real that makes me forget about the real world right now. Something that hits right, makes you want to raise your hands high. Yeah, there's a lot that rocket science sometimes. I just want to feel it. I just want to feel it. I just Wanna feel it? Give me something real that makes me forget about the real.